You're listening to The Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. Serious talk about the sacred book. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. And I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but I have one quick announcement that this week is our last week to have weekly podcasts coming up. So we're moving to our summer schedule, which is every other week. It gives us a little breather so that we can get ready for the fall, coming back at you hard with every week episodes. But just so you know, it's not uh, it's not just reruns or anything like that. So stay tuned all summer. Every other week, we'll be bringing you new episodes of The Bible for Normal People, and we hope you enjoy that. But we didn't want anybody to be upset when, you know, next Monday, you get in your car and there's no new episode. So... We use that time to go back, listen to any of the archives that you haven't listened to. Then the next Monday, you'll be ready. You'll be right as rain. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this episode of The Bible for Normal People. And our topic today is the biblical universal Christ. Biblical in parentheses. Yes. Because, yeah, this is the the way we're moving forward, I think, in Christianity, where— the, I, I don't want to get into trouble, but I think where we're moving beyond the Bible, and I don't mean that to say in any sense disrespectfully, right. but almost as like you've said, Pete, that the Bible is propelling us, asking us, almost pleading with us, I think, mm-hmm. to move beyond it. I think I would make the case that even within the biblical period, people were moving beyond the Bible because it wasn't adequate in and of itself to – like verses don't do it. It's a bigger picture and its trajectories and – Richard Rohr uses the term runways to get to places, and that's not disrespectful of Scripture because without it, you don't get there. Right. Well, and it's the way that without it, we end up leaving the Bible as something that's no longer relevant or significant right. to us in our culture and day. Yeah, yeah. So you have to sort of engage it in your own time and place. So anyway, the, back to the title, the, the parenthesis, Biblical Universal Christ, as I'm sure many of you know, Richard Rohr wrote this book that came out, uh, I guess, a couple months ago or so, maybe more than that when we're recording this, called The Universal Christ, which is a really intriguing title and perhaps somewhat problematic for some. Understandably, we get it. We definitely, you know, we're not a part of that, uh, uh, you know, apart from that world that would maybe have some difficulty with a, a title like The Universal Christ. But you know, it's it's a biblical notion, and this is what Richard is trying to point out in his book, and it's something that's there that's been a part of the witness of the church, but has been muted for whatever reason, you know, in maybe the centuries past. And and so we just gave him a chance to talk about that and how that fits in with the Bible. Yeah, and I think the perspective of, he brings it up too, the Eastern Church would have probably not very many problems with this language and how over the century or so centuries this uh you know this would have been common I, I for me it helps to recognize my default is to realize maybe I'm just ignorant of really important strands in the Christian tradition if I get my hackles up about certain things because right. time and time again I've been proven to just say oh well here's these nine church fathers or uh mystics or saints that were accepted in the church who say pretty much the exact same thing and I just didn't know about it. Yeah, and it's, you know, Jared and I both went to seminary, and n- this is not an unusual experience. We never touched the East, ever. It's like, it's a non-issue. The only issue is, are Catholics right or are Protestants right? And if Protestants are right, which particular sub <laughs> subbrand of Protestants are really right more <laughs> well, than the which others? Which Calvinists are right? Yeah, which, <laughs> in which decade, that kind of thing. So, you know, that's it's it's understandable that 
you know, some of this, this witness of the church more broadly considered, even though every branch has problems, you know, we're not, we're not trying to divinize anything, but there, we, there's... We a, are, isn't it ironic? We are trying to divinize ooh, it all. Ooh, That's the point of this episode. You'll have to listen to the episode yeah. to know what Jared's talking idealize, about. Idealize, <laughs> maybe. We're not trying to idealize. Yes, yeah. lionize mm-hmm. or something. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, we're not trying to do any of that kind of bad stuff, but, you know, there's something about the Christian tradition that isn't always maybe captured well by the West, and I say that as a total Westerner, you know, and it's realizing that maybe there's things that we've missed. We're just people. We only see things from our perspective. So let's listen to people who have studied this from other perspectives that are absolutely within the Christian fold. Yeah, folks like Richard Rohr. Father Richard Rohr. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get to it. Let's get to it. You know, I see us moving rather quickly in consciousness from transactional religion to transformational religion. Mm -hmm. That if it's not transforming consciousness and moving you to greater love, greater hope, greater faith, then I don't see what good it is believing in heavenly transactions. Let's talk microdosing, as you'd expect from a Bible podcast. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. And you know, microdose gummies are good for so many things like anxiety, workflow, sleeping, and stuff like that. I mean, Jared, we've had people in our lives that have benefited from this too, not just us. Yeah, I have a family member who regularly uses microdosing for more creative, like recreational time, a time they journal every night and it's sort of a way to unwind and do the journaling. And that's worked really well for them. Our yeah. producer. Our producer. It's made such a difference, folks. I can't even tell you that. So anyway, <laughs> and for me as well, uh, microdose gummies help me a lot with anxiety and sleep and just stopping that racing mind at night. And it helps tremendously. I get a good night's sleep. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code normal people. It's available nationwide. At microdose.com, promo code normal people for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com, promo code normal people. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre made template, With Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Richard, welcome once again to The Bible for Normal People. It's great to be with you. Thank you. Yes, this is your second visit with us, but I think we've played your episode one time at least. Like we, We reissued the first time we met together. Two yeah. years ago. Yeah. Well, and it continues to be just a, a really popular episode because I think you have a lot of helpful things to say to people about what the Bible is, maybe what it isn't, and uh, how it can be really fruitful in this larger spiritual life. So we're looking forward to digging in. Well, okay. So last time we ended our podcast with you, and you had mentioned an analogy using a tricycle, for I think you called that a mode of knowing. Is that right? Yes, yes. Okay. I- Let's start off with that. Okay, I use it with our students here in the living school. And uh, I start teaching it the very first day as our methodology. And in it, I'm trying to bridge the seeming gaps between the, the religious traditions. 
And uh, I say that we're going to rely in the school upon three sources. The front wheel probably surprises a lot of people as the front wheel and its experience. The two back wheels are scripture and tradition. And my conviction is if you let those three, scripture, tradition, experience, balance one another, correct one another, feed one another, you have a very holistic way of knowing spiritual things. Now, the reason I put experience on the front is because, you know, we all do it anyway. We read everything in Scripture and our tradition through our own experience. So I just want us to begin to be honest about that. And that includes critiquing our own experience, too. Uh, and, of course, it comes back, too, to the one of the major fights of the Reformation. We Catholics were supposedly into tradition, although far too often it meant very re- regional uh, ethnic traditions. And, of course, good Luther said sola scriptura, uh, and my teaching on non-dual consciousness uh, sends up a little red flag when I hear sola, uh, only, only Scripture. Now, I know I'm talking like a Catholic, but <laughs> <laughs> but uh, if, if we cannot believe something unless there's a Scripture verse, then we're being dishonest because there's a whole bunch of things we believe that are not in Scripture. The whole medical world, let's, the whole technical world, so we're drawing belief from other sources than just Scripture, uh, even, even spiritual understandings of things. So anyway, I take really a whole week with the students unpackaging those three and putting them, I hope, in uh, a healthy balance to one another. So, so Scripture doesn't drive the tricycle. No, I know that must be shocking to— uh, evangelicals, but no, it doesn't. (laughs) Experience is the honest driver, and neither Catholics nor Protestants admitted that, (laughs) Mm -hmm. that it's always filtered through your uh, Italian culture, through your 18th century existence, through you coming from a poor family or a rich family. Uh, And those are simply the things we've become aware of by modern education, I guess. So you you uh, you have a, a new book. It's not a new concept. I think you've been using it for a while now, this idea of the, the universal Christ. So maybe can you introduce us to what the universal Christ is and maybe how you see that interacting with the Bible and where where do you where do you see that, find that? I don't even know the right words for how to interact that with Scripture. Well, that's what I hope I achieve in the book, because I'm very eager to show this is scriptural, but we just didn't have the eyes to tend to it. Uh, we were so enamored, rightly so, with Jesus of Nazareth uh, that we almost thought of Christ as his last name, as I say in several places in the book. But, uh, well, I've got Ephesians here open in front of me. Let me just read the hymn in the first chapter, part of the hymn of Ephesians. 
Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all the spiritual blessings of heaven in Christ. Now, let me stop right there. In Christ, and Christo in Greek, is Paul's shortcut word for this whole Christ mystery. He uses it 164 times in all of his letters. We've read it so much that we just sort of jump over it. He chose us in Christ before the world began. Isn't that amazing? How did we not see that? The sort of the problem was solved at the beginning. Election and and uh, salvation. We were chosen in Christ before the world began. He let us know the mystery of His purpose, according to His good pleasure, which He determined beforehand in Christ for him to act upon when the times had run their course, that he would bring everything together under Christ as head. Now, this was the preferred Christological text in Franciscan spirituality and Franciscan theology. And let me tell you why. As you probably know, our father, St. Francis, was not a academic. He was not even highly educated. He was just a spiritual genius. And he spoke of things that almost sound pantheistic. Brother sun, sister moon, sister water, brother air, sister fox, (laughs) brother cow. Everything in the known universe had a subject-to-subject relationship for him. Now, we knew even in the early period, 13th century, that sounded pretty poetic and lightweight to the academy. And so in our first century, several intellectuals joined the order, and they tried to give theological heft to what Francis intuited. And they chose Ephesians 1, Colossians 1, the prologue to John's gospel, the first paragraph of Hebrews, the first paragraph of 1 John, as the primary text, revealing a shared corporate historical notion of Christ as identified with creation itself. Now, the other verse that's worth throwing in is Romans 1.20, where it says everything we need to know about God is in the created world. Now, if, if I'd come on the scene and just talk that way, I know people would quickly call me a pantheist, but it's quite scriptural, but we just didn't have the eyes to see it. And so that's all I'm trying to do. For many people, it's a game changer. Because what it does, if I can rush to the conclusion, uh, it makes the first 13.6 billion years not empty of God. And I, I think that's the underlying doubt and question that's been in the heart of so many Christians. What about the Stone Age people? Didn't the one God who created all things create them too? Didn't they have inherent dignity? Didn't they carry divine DNA? 
along with the Africans and the Mayans and the Babylonians and everybody else. Uh, we just did a little, I don't know what you call it, but it seems to me denial that God just started talking 2,000, 3,000 years ago. Uh, with the begin or three to four thousand, with the beginning of the Hebrew Scriptures, what a Franciscan would say is that can't be true. <laughs> it can't be true that God is not stingy. God is not withholding the God self. So we called creation the first Bible. Now, I, I know that uh, sounds like scary talk to a good Protestant or a good evangelical. And even within the Catholic Church, we were an alternative orthodoxy, but because we'd made our case, we were never considered unorthodox. It was just a secondary opinion. And uh, yet that's what I was educated in. And really, I've hoped all my life to write this book. Mm -hmm. I, I feel this book is in many ways the uh, denouement of all my previous books. Because mm -hmm. if I can in any way share this with the Christian world, and it seems the time is so needed right now for some notion of religion that is not ethnic, that is not nationalistic, that is not privileged in the sense that uh, our God is unshareable and we've got the true God and everybody else is, is wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, I just can't rest there anymore. I can't. Right. Well, a couple of questions, Richard, because, again, I'm channeling what I think our listeners might want to ask. Sure, but, please do. Um, so, you know, the Franciscan insight, let's say, that can't be true, right? God uh -huh. has to be intimately bound up and tied with creation. Yeah. Would you say that's – I'm getting back to the tricycle here. That's an experiential insight. Yes, yes. And 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 then you engage scripture and tradition on the basis of that. Am I, am I – is that the right way to put it? very good. It's experiential, and out of that creates a tradition of knowing and seeing that we would call a mystical knowing. And you probably know I use the word mystical – to simply mean experiential. Yeah. And so, I mean, I, I'm thinking of people, too. I have conversations all the time, and I think myself and, and Jared does, too. I say to myself all the time, I can't imagine God is like X, Y, or Z. I know I read it in the tradition. I know I even read it in the Bible, but I cannot believe, for example, that God is concerned about a patch of land and killing people to take them off of it. Yep. Right? Like the Canaanite issue in, yes, in, in, yes, in the Hebrew yes. Scriptures. And I, I have to be honest with myself, that's rooted in my experience. I, I just, because of when I'm born, where I'm born, and very my good, Very right? good. We're in the right. same place. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of people are without maybe realizing it, uh, without being able to put the words to it, which is why I think your book is, is so important. Um, can you give us... You're getting at this this whole universal Christ business that makes 13.6 billion years important. But could you, not to put you on the spot, give a maybe a brief definition for people who haven't read the book? What what you mean by the universal Christ? The universal Christ is the presence of God in matter. 
<laughs> now, I know we haven't come at it that way, but that's the meaning of the incarnation, enfleshment. And it's not accidental that John's gospel says, the word became flesh. He uses a generic term. And the early fathers of the church, especially in the East, which is part of the reason we lost it, maybe the most important reason, they noticed that, that a generic word was being used, and uh, it, it was talking about God accepting the entire material universe. Uh, this is, it doesn't say the word in that verse, it doesn't say the word became Jesus. <laughs> Uh, now, that, that's the leap that you and I make, and, and I assert and believe. Uh, if you studied patristics, I'm opening the book right now to page 27. I quote the one we call the father of orthodoxy, St. Athanasius, 3rd and 4th century. Just listen to this quote. God was consistent in working through one man, to reveal himself everywhere, as well as through the other parts of his creation, so that nothing was left devoid of his divinity and his self-knowledge, so that the whole universe was filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters fill the sea. And you might remember, mm. I said the whole book is just a footnote to that quote. Yeah. You'll be proud of me, Richard. I actually highlighted that very Oh, good. very good. I'm a good reader. I'm doing so. I'm so proud of myself. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that we would think that's pantheism shows how far we've come from a historical Christianity. It is, as you rightly know, I'm sure, it's rightly called panentheism. Mm -hmm. Not God equals all things, but God can be found in all things. And I emphasize in the book things, thingness, materiality, uh, physicality. Uh, this is the meaning of the incarnation, that spirit is found in and through matter. Uh, once you surrender to that, or if you surrender to that, if we had surrendered to that, we would have had a much greater teaching on sexuality. We would have had a much greater teaching on earth care. We would have had a much less ability to be racist and sexist and homophobic because you can't divvy it up now and say, this carries the divine image, but that doesn't. <laughs> if, it's, if it's here in this universe, it carries the divine image. And we're monotheists. We say one God created all things. Okay, if one God created all things, then all things bear the divine DNA. You know, Richard, this it, it strikes me interestingly enough, and maybe you guys could either one uh, tell me if I'm off base here, but just you reading that quote from, from Athanasius makes me actually think it says, uh, you know, that God was consistent in working through one man to reveal himself everywhere, struck a chord with me in the teachings through the Hebrew scriptures of the Israelite people who kept missing the point that they were a blessing to be a blessing, that through one nation, the whole world would be blessed. And so how we can kind of focus on the one and lose the many, and focus on kind of the particular and lose the unity 
in that. And I see that even in the, the Hebrew scriptures where the, we have these points in the prophets in Genesis that we, we don't think about it as a process. That we, 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 uh, if we could expand kind of our mind or our consciousness to see that it's a, it's a moving thing, it's a dynamic thing. It's not the one, but it's the one so that the many. Um, and that's what struck me about that quote. I could not agree more. We always get trapped at the ego inflation of the first stage. I'm special. I'm chosen. And we don't realize, as you well said, that that blessing is so you can hand on the blessing to others, not so you can say, I'm better than you. Mm-hmm. And the concrete is the way to the universal. But you, you normally have to start with one concrete enlightenment. But all of the the uh, covenants in the Hebrew Scriptures are with the people Israel, with the collective. Maybe it's through Moses, Abraham, David, Noah, but you read it, and in the Noah covenant, I think it says four times, I am making this covenant with all of creation. And I never noticed that for years. I think it says it three or four times. Uh, we, but we read everything through the eye of Western individualism. But as I, I think also, Richard, I, I agree with that. It may be, I, I don't know, maybe I'm just mis- misreading things here, but there could be more to it in this sense that this, this making of distinctions that you're saying, you know, we're done with that, that's, that's also part of the Christian Bible in the Hebrew Scriptures, because you have distinctions made between insiders and outsiders, not all the time. Okay, you, you read that uh, the covenant with Noah, but there are other strands of Scripture that speak very differently. And, I mean, this is the dangerous place to go, because it sounds, I don't mean to sound supersessionistic, um, because I don't, I, don't, I don't think I am, but I wonder, would, would you agree that there's something about the gospel that raises to a different level this, um, we don't make these distinctions anymore, even though we once did. Uh, I really would, but I'm glad you made that point. I'm not supersessionist either. Uh, mm-hmm. But it's, it's hard to uh, doubt, you know, well, I call it the Jesus hermeneutic, that Jesus raises his Jewish religion to a very high level of understanding. His clear teaching on nonviolence, for example. Uh, so we don't want to doubt that, but it, it it's organically building on the Jewish tradition. And without that trajectory of the Jewish history, I don't think you get Jesus very well. Mm-hmm. So, so they create the runway that we're standing on, that we're building on. Uh, and, and, you know, let me add one other thing, if it's not too abstract. When I teach contemplation to the students, I say, first you have to succeed at dualistic thinking, making distinctions between the Jews and the Canaanites, all right? That's where the mind starts. But then your response has to be non-dual, <laughs> Uh, we, we, we don't want to say everything is beautiful, everything is the same, everything is homogenous. No, it isn't. We need mental clarity, first of all. But then 
it, it takes a while. Most people don't get to a, even an understanding of nonviolence till the second half of life. When you recognize that it doesn't work to just lay down the law in a dualistic way, it actually creates a whole new set of problems. Does that make sense? Absolutely. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for All People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener of the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, they offer free plant consultation forever. I was worried about talking about fast growing trees on here because I'm not a green thumb, but then I realized that probably makes me the perfect candidate to be able to talk about this. I loved the website. It was so easy. It was searchable by region. And then the experts who are there to help you make the decisions lowers the anxiety around something I don't typically know a lot about, but it was a really good experience. This spring, they have the best deals online up to half off on selected plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code NORMALPEOPLE. Offers valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. And and I think the, the draw, there, there is a draw toward the dualistic in Scripture Oh, there is. That's that's an easy place to go. And again, I, that sounds, I don't mean to sound condescending, but it's it is a natural place to go yes, that I is. think all people of faith struggle with at some point or another. But in order to move to what you're ta- talking about, like a trajectory way of looking at scripture, or there's a runway, you know, that gets us to uh, the the let's say the level of enlightenment in the gospel uh, that. That in and of itself, that's a very different way of looking at it the is. purpose of Scripture for many people. And it's it, there's nothing like experience, I think, to get you to this point. Very good, yes. But if you deny the experience, which we're taught to. You know, Jared and I, we've talked about this a lot on this podcast. We, you're taught 
to invalidate your your experience means nothing. You just do what the Bible says. Mm-hmm. Which, which you know, as you're talking, Pete, it actually comes down to where did that come from? There's a there's a duality between the spirit and the flesh. So the reason I can't trust my experience is because I'm of the flesh, mm-hmm. and God is of the spirit. And then it quickly breaks down, like you said, Richard, to start is okay. But what do we mean by the spirit? Other than trusting other people, usually what we mean is we trust our pastor's interpretation of the Bible rather than ours. Well, yeah. he's just as much, if we're going to be dualistic about it, he's just as much flesh as we are. <laughs> but you're, you know, you're offering this other way, this redemption. I, I always come back to, and Paul, I think it's in Colossians where he talks about Christ in you, the hope yes, of glory. your hope um, of glory. And, yeah, and so I think there's something too about the spiritualization of our flesh that allows us to trust ourselves and trust our experience. And that's kind of the anthropology we need to even have this understanding of the tricycle, because if not, our front wheel is just always going to be flat. That's excellent. Very well said. And uh, you've probably heard me say in other places how uh, I love Paul. He's my hero. But the one thing I, I find it hard to forgive him for is his over distinguishing flesh and spirit. Now, I think he finally puts them back together in his chapter on resurrection at the end of 1 Corinthians. But he so overstated his case. I mean, the word flesh in John's gospel is a positive. But in Paul's letters, it mostly comes across as a negative. Mm -hmm. And for me, incarnation is putting flesh and spirit together. That's the whole mystery. So flesh can't be bad. Hey everyone, my name is Manuel Gomez from San Juan, Puerto Rico. I am part of the producers group here at The Bible for Normal People. One thing I have appreciated about this podcast is how it helps create an environment where honest questions are explored with humility and a dose of humor. If you have gotten something from this free podcast, I want to take a moment to mention how you can support Pete and Jared in their work. This podcast is brought to you by supporters on the Patreon platform. For as little as $1 per month, you can be part of the group that brings this podcast to normal people everywhere. As a gift for your support, we have book studies, chat groups, and lots of videos from Pete and Jared. So check it out at patreon.com backslash the Bible for normal people. If you're able to support the show financially, no worries. You can still help. Go to iTunes and rate and review the podcast. That can go a long way to help others find us. One group in particular we want to thank is our producers group, who work hard to tell Pete and Jared where they're messing up and how to do better. Thanks to Jeremy Jones, Becky Davenport, Dave Carlton, Heather, Jonathan Beck, Lucas Gibbs, Viviana Eastwood, and Corey Moore. The Bible for Normal People couldn't happen without you. Now back to the podcast. And and putting it together, you know, when you say incarnation, most Christians that we know would go immediately to Christmas, but you're talking about matter, everything. Everything. Right? Yes. Yeah. And 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 okay, so what makes Jesus different again? Is this the Athanasius quote that you read before? Well, him and a whole bunch of other early fathers, but I think I make the point in the book that the the early patristic period that most strongly taught this was in the East. And when in 1054, 
The two patriarchs, Rome and Constantinople, mutually excommunicated one another. How nice of them. <laughs> we, we in the Roman church basically stopped teaching the Eastern fathers. We didn't, they were the Greek fathers. We read the Latin fathers. And so when the good and needed Protestant Reformation comes along, no one ever told them, you're trying to reform one half of the piece of the pie, and you have almost no access or even interest, except for scholars, with the other half. So we, there's historical reasons why we lost this more corporate uh, understanding of incarnation. It, it was held much more in the Eastern Church. Yeah, John Dominic Crossan wrote a book a couple of years ago, which I think you mentioned. What am I talking about? Um, about the resurrection. Oh, yeah. We just had him here at our huge conference right. on the book. Which is, uh, yeah, that's that's a really insightful. Isn't it? Uh, and he makes the same point, yes. Right. About resurrection was corporately conceived in the Eastern Church, but more of an individual proof kind of thing, if I remember correctly from your book um, in, in the West. Yeah, they really believe that the Christ mystery destroyed death. <laughs> They're not just pretending for a few good moral people. No, he is the trajectory of history that it's heading toward resurrection. Now, this is where I know we look like we're playing with universalism. And so a lot of people get scared. I don't know why they get so scared. You'd think they'd get excited. But, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but most of them don't. So um, when, when you've been entirely raised on the win-lose, reward-punishment paradigm, which is attractive in the world of sports, in the world of business, you pretty much overlay that onto the gospel. And you, you like to understand the gospel in terms of a win-lose world. Richard, what, you used the phrase just now, the Christ mystery. And again, I'm thinking here in terms of my own background and the one that a lot of our listeners share. I mean, Christ reveals God. So what do you mean by the Christ mystery? That sounds like you can't know things. Yeah, well, my definition of mystery is not something that's not knowable, but mystery is endless knowability. You never get to a point where you can say, I got it. Got that down. Uh, it's always, oh, oh. The Trinity is the same way, of course. Mm -hmm. So, I use the Christ mystery to point to the divine presence in creation since the beginning of time. That when God decided to manifest the God self, uh, Yahweh says, let there be light. Light is not something you see as much as that by which you see everything else. So it's no accident that light becomes the metaphor for the Christ mystery. The seeability, the visibility of God in materiality. Uh, so I'm trying to make it a more general term. Jesus then comes in a moment of time as the personification of the Christ mystery. 
And I love that verse in 1 John where he says, right at the beginning, we needed one we could see and touch and hear and love with our heart. Human beings are made to love persons. We can't fall in love with a, a, a mystery as such or a concept or an idea or an energy. And so I can realize and appreciate why this took off after the incarnation of Christ in Jesus. But the, the, the presence, the divine presence, has been with us since the beginning of time. It's just that it needed a face that we could fall in love with. So please don't hear me, it doesn't sound like you are, that I'm downplaying Jesus at all. But I think you need both the personal and the universal to have a healthy religion. We've had a lot of the personal, which I'm afraid uh, degenerated into sent the sentimental, Jesus as my personal boyfriend, uh, instead, of, <laughs> instead of a, we're dealing with a metaphysical principle that encompasses all of creation. <laughs> yeah, you can't teach that to the high school youth groups, though. <laughs> That's the problem. <laughs> the, and now I'm jumping to the hymn at Colossians. He is the image of the unseen God, the firstborn of all creation. He, Colossians is talking about the Christ. In mm -hmm. him were created all things in heaven and on earth. He exists before all things, and in him all things hold together. That, that, that someone wrote that way maybe as early as 55 or 60 is just mind-blowing to me. How did we get from humble Jesus of Nazareth, crucified on a cross, to a cosmic metaphysics in 30 years, maybe 40? It's, to me, it's just miraculous. <laughs> well, I, I want to go back to, you know, you just how you phrase that. I want to go back because we often will ask uh, when we use big words for you guys to explain it. So you guys both used supersessionism and how you don't want to be supersessionistic. So, you know, how do you avoid, like, I want to first, what, what do we mean by that? I, I think it's good to unpack that. But secondly, how do we avoid some, not supersessionism, but some sense of development? And are those not the same thing? Because like you said, not only do we move from Jesus crucified to the cosmic metaphysics, which is just going from, it gets very complex and can be abstract. And if you take into account the Hebrew Bible, where we move from uh, what seems to be a retributive uh, God, a punitive God, to this myst uh, mystery and cosmic Christ, there seems to be some some movement or oh, yes. process oh, yes. there. And I'm, so how do we navigate that? Well, let me just throw in real quick. Because we made the word evolutionary a bad word, that's why this is such a switch in consciousness for us. Mm -hmm. Now, having said that, uh, we, uh, well, I, I hope I say it in the book. I think the direct, if we're looking for breadcrumbs that lead us on the trail, one of the first clear Christ breadcrumbs is the Jacob experience of sleeping on a rock, angels moving between the rock and heaven, 
both directions. And he says, Eureka, I found it. This is it. This is the gate of heaven. You were here all the time, and I never knew it. And he anoints the rock and calls it Bethel, the house of God. Now, by Jewish standards, that looks like paganism. Hmm. Uh, We don't call rocks the presence of God. Well, they did. (laughs) (laughs) This is the Christ mystery, little by little showing itself. So I'm not speaking in terms of of supersessionism, which means either or, that Christianity supersedes Judaism and completely eliminates it. I'm saying there is an organic, and I emphasize the word organic, development between the recognitions that are growing in the Hebrew Scriptures and Jesus just pulls them all together as a good Jewish man, never intending to leave his Jewish religion. This is the religion that taught him that, the divine presence in history. Your most recent book, Peter, How the Bible Actually Works, my gosh, didn't doesn't it shock you sometimes how boring all this history is? And (laughs) you had much more patience with it than I do and explain it much better than I could. But that tells me that boring human history matters to God and and that the Jewish people found God in history, in the materiality and physicality and power games of history. That's what I'm talking about. So... We're not supersessionists. You know, the way they say today, organic fruit is better than natural fruit. (laughs) Well, that's what I'm saying. This is an organic development. It's still a pear. It's still a peach. But it's in an evolved form. And I guess I can't deny that I think Jesus is a very evolved Jew. But Hmm. the noun is still Jew. He wasn't a Christian. He was a Jew. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, Richard, you mentioned before, I guess just all these things are firing in my head here about the divine presence in matter since the very beginning. And, you know, we can't help but bring in the, the concept you just mentioned of evolution because there have been evolutionary changes, cosmic evolution and, you know, geological evolution, human evolution, evolution of life. One thing that... I think needs to be explained when we when we talk like that is the importance of death in the evolutionary process. Excellent, excellent. So, Go ahead. so help, Go ahead. help us under no, just help us understand how how can that be a good thing? How can the divine presence be seen in the fact that most things die? We're here because stars exploded. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's it's just, I mean, death and life and those things are so loss tied together. Loss and renewal, but, loss and renewal, loss and renewal. It is the pattern of the universe, and scientists right now seem to believe it better than clergymen do, you know? (laughs) (laughs) We think it's a mystery that happened one time in the body of Jesus. And if you only read one chapter of my new book, read the one on resurrection. 
uh, because I don't believe the resurrection of Jesus is a one-time anomaly. He is the revelation of the universal pattern. In our Catholic funeral mass, we say life is not ended. It merely changes. It merely changes. Now, every good scientist says, you know what? That's the case, that the same atoms that were apparently here in the beginning have been rearranging themselves for 13.7 billion years. Uh, it's yeah. mind-blowing. It really is. But as you seem to be saying there, it's not just poetry when people say you are stardust. Mm -hmm. We are composed of the same elements of nitrogen and carbon that have been with us since the beginning of time. Now, do you see what that prepares us for? A very collective notion of our personhood, our humanity, uh, that doesn't emphasize diversity to such a point when you realize it starts in a radical unity. Mm -hmm. You know, I hear a lot about how, you know, are science and faith compatible at all? And, of course, that there's no better way to get beaten up in a Christian cocktail party if they do that sort of thing but by raising that issue. But this takes it to a different level as far as I'm concerned, the relationship between what science has discovered and the implications of that for understanding concepts that are that seem to be deeply embedded in the Christian tradition and in Scripture, if you have the eye to see it. You just keep saying it better than I can say it. No, that, don't even start with that, Richard. Well, this is why I get the big money, Richard. If, I don't you, know. if you have the eye to see it. And human beings normally, except for these rare individuals, we don't pay attention to things until we're told to pay attention to them. Otherwise, they just glide over us. And that's very yeah. true in Scripture, too. Yeah. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Well, what are some, just some practical, you know, you use you use the Bible uh, a lot in your book, and I, I really appreciate how um, these concepts kind of get weaved in and out with Scripture, even here on the podcast you have. So what are some practical things that maybe you can tell people who maybe haven't gone to your school or sure. have a different understanding of Scripture or even the, the mystery of Christ— to start down that road so that it doesn't feel so overwhelming? Because I think a lot of people will be energized by what you say, and then they'll say, what, what do I do to kind of help help me uh, understand it that way? Yeah, don't go talk to your pastor. <laughs> <laughs> so. You know, when we keep seeing these same social issues recurring century after century, uh, you know, I was a child of the 60s, and I thought, well, we've dealt with civil rights now. I was obviously very naive. Uh, now we've got an anti-war movement. We're never going to be violent in the way we were again. How much has that been disproven 
just in the last 10 years of our history. So I think that if people can recognize the true gospel to be good news for all the people, as the angels say at Bethlehem, it has to have the ability to change our capacity for community, our capacity for changing our politics and our economics. If it doesn't, I don't know how it could possibly be good news, and, and, and certainly not good news for all the people. So, um, you know, universal incarnation uh, is, is the only thing that gives me universal hope. Otherwise, uh, and I, I find some Christians actually thinking the whole thing is going to hell in a handbasket. And they even pray for it, too, it seems. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> yeah. How did we get to such a despairing notion of history uh, when we said Christ gives us hope, Christ gives us life, and then we become lovers of death? Well, and, how did we, Richard? How, how did you know we collectively get to that point where the gospel is more despairing yeah. of matter, despairing of creation. I mean, that's a big question. I it, know, like, it really we could is. Probably, really we could is. drop down in a million different places in church history probably or, or, or whatever, but does anything come to – because I know people are asking that question. So what, Oh, yeah, they are. Any, any place where you want to touch down just briefly, well, like well, maybe a spot where you can see it more easily than other places? Does this help? I am convinced that we are still in – baby Christianity. Oh, gosh. (laughs) Uh, 2,000 years after the incarnation in Christ, in Jesus Christ. Uh, Let's put it that way. Uh, I think we're just beginning to get the implications of the trajectory this has set us on. So you can see, I, I cannot think except in evolutionary ways. When, mm-hmm. I, when I see how consciousness is evolving, it clearly is, even though the pushback is equally evolving. <laughs> They're mm-hmm. both true. They're both true. But, you know, wherever I go, I just I addressed the Lutheran Synod this past weekend. And these were, you know, just bona fide Midwest Lutherans. And they were with me for the whole day. I gave them three talks, and they admitted it was blowing their mind. But the reason I bring it up is, what is this evolution of consciousness that allows people to say yes to this when it's explained rather easily? Another place I see it uh, is in millennials. Are either of you millennials? (laughs) Nope. No, no. Okay, <laughs> I, I don't know your age. Forgive me. Yeah. But almost half of our staff here, we have 46 people on the staff, and about half of them are millennials. And they just seem to, I mean, I'm not making saints out of them. Their work ethic is very different than mine. But, <laughs> but, uh, but boy, are they creative. And they, they just don't have time for the prejudices that my generation fostered and, and, and uh, fretted over. They don't have time for it. It's, uh, it, it's, 
they're not concerned about preaching the gospel as much as living the gospel, caring about clean water for people in Nicaragua, you know? And they care about that with a passion, with a servanthood that I got to be honest, most of my generation did not have. Mm -hmm. Uh, My generation, we attended services. These millennials are interested in being servants Mm -hmm. without all the the religious paraphernalia. And now they're going to have their problems too. Sure. I'm sure. I'm not trying to idealize, but there's something that is evolving in consciousness. To me, and it's, that, it's undeniable, yeah. undeniable. And that evolution is, again, to get back to what we said at the beginning, is experientially driven. They're not getting that from reading a Bible verse. They're no. getting it from their own place and time and their location and what they see around them, and they're responding to it. So that's... Again, an example of just what seems rather obvious to me, and I, I know to you as well, that experiences, it really fuels how we process sure. well, the sure. universal Christ. Yeah, it's, it's core. It's, now, they love it when I can bring a scripture that affirms their experience. Uh, you can just almost hear them saying, hallelujah. Uh, so mm-hmm. you, you can tell there's still a love of the scriptures but they're almost surprised that the Scripture has some universal truth in it. Yes. <laughs> and that's yes. our job as preachers and teachers to find that universal truth. Mm-hmm. Well, Richard, listen, that's wonderful. We are really coming to the end of our time, unfortunately. But is there anything you want to leave us with? That's, I, hate, I hate getting asked that question myself. <laughs> I want to leave you with goodbye. That's really what oh, I want to so leave sweet. with. But, Thank you. But uh, anything that um, – maybe something that you think is just of great importance in your book that really gets you excited that you haven't had a chance to talk about yet. Wow. What what have I not had a chance to talk about? Yeah. Uh, you've given me so many chances. Uh, <laughs> really, I mean that. Well, how about – I mean, something like um, you want to get across succinctly to someone – why you think what you're saying in this book is important. What's the elevator pitch? Again, I hate that question, but I'm the one asking it, not answering it. Does this help at all? You know, I see us moving rather quickly in consciousness from transactional religion to transformational religion. I think Mm -hmm. I say that in several places. You do. That if it's not transforming consciousness and moving you to greater love, greater hope, greater faith, just to speak of the three theological virtues, as we call them, then I don't, I don't see what good it is believing in heavenly transactions. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we Catholics were famous for that. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, when Luther first came along and said justification by faith, he was rightly moving toward transformational religion, Mm -hmm. I believe. But Mm -hmm. then, and I said this to the Lutherans last weekend, (laughs) sure enough, you turned it back into another transaction. A little make your little decision for Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior while retaining your, your old politics, your old economics, your individualism, but you made your personal decision for Jesus. That mm-hmm. just won't work anymore. Yeah. 
So I hope my whole book is a, is yeah. a, an essay in in collective transformation. Yeah. Well, I'm actually glad you raised that because for purely purely uh, selfish reasons, I think the first insight I regain I I can recall gaining from you I don't know, many years ago was the transformational nature of true religion. Really? Oh, good. Yeah. That was years ago, yeah. I've been saying that that long. I don't even realize that. <laughs> really, I don't. Thank you. <laughs> well, great. Well, um, Richard, is there um, – I hate to ask you, are you working on another book? Well, <laughs> I am. And, yeah? you know, the staff just laughs when I'm always saying, this is my last book. This is my last yeah. book. And I really intended to be. But I opened a can of worms somewhere toward the end of the book by admitting that I did have a corporate understanding of salvation, but I also find in Paul, especially in Romans, a corporate understanding of sin. Mm. And and I hope to write it just in a short monograph book, sort of like that book I wrote, What Do We Do With the Bible? Because unless you read it, see it's a small book, a lot of people won't read it. And I am convinced that Paul's real understanding of sin is not your individual nastiness or my individual egocentricity. It includes that. But let me just call it the impossible human situation, Hmm. the tragic (laughs) sense of life, the absurd injustice and silliness that we all find ourselves inside of. That's another one of those ideas. Once you just say it to someone, like, now you guys are already there, but go back and reread Romans. And I think it's hidden in plain sight. He is not preoccupied with individual sin, except in so far as it has emerged from this corporate illusion, this corporate imprisonment. Let me draw it together with this. In classic Catholic moral theology, we said there were three sources of evil, the world, the flesh, and the devil. In that order, Hmm. the world is the first source of evil, that there's a collective deceit, there's a collective delusion uh, that we all really agree to War being probably the most outstanding one. I don't think there's been a single civilization that didn't wage war, you know. We all agree it's just really good to have war Mm. to protect our country. And then we come along and tell individual people, thou shalt not kill. So somehow that has to be resolved. Or I don't think we're ever going to mature the Christian moral consciousness that we're mm. schizophrenic about good and evil. We, we really don't think it's that bad. I think American politics right now is showing us this, that 82%, you can delete this part if you want, uh, 82% <laughs> of white evangelicals could see no problem with our present leadership. Let me just call it that tells me we're still moral infants, infants. Mm. 
And uh, so I'd like to unpackage that to educate our, our moral development. And that'll be, uh, I promise you, my last book. Yeah, okay, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> we'll believe it when we see it. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Richard, again, for coming on. We really appreciate it. And, uh, yeah, we wish you the best as you talk to all sorts of uh, other iterations of Christians, Lutherans, and Methodists. Make sure you get to the Presbyterians at some point. I think they have. Uh, they need to hear some of Well, they have Ghost Ranch too. here, you know, uh, and they're always strong on justice issues, so I like the Presbyterians. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks so much. You're both a delight. Thank you. Thank you, Richard. God thanks so much. God bless you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, thanks everyone again for joining us for this episode of The Bible for Normal People with Richard Rohr. We would encourage you, if this was stimulating, interesting, opened your eyes to to some new things, to read more in Richard's book, The Universal Christ, How a Forgotten Reality Can Change Everything We See, Hope For, and Believe. So you can pick that up. Again, it came out this year, so um, fairly good stuff. Yeah, we like plugging books of new authors who are struggling to get going, you know, poor Mm -hmm. Richard, like nobody really knows who he is, but anyway, so. Yeah, he has a good long, bright future ahead of him, I think, in this world. I think so. I think he's going to do just fine. All right, folks, listen, thanks for listening, and uh, we will see you next time. Yep. Saving money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big money.